Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. More than a week after Election Day, we finally know who will control Congress next year. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Control, a show where we try to help you understand the new Congress and look ahead to the opportunities and conflicts that will define Congress in 2023. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm Brendan Buck, your other host. We are recording this on Wednesday, November 16th. It only took us, what, eight days, and we finally know who's going to control Congress, uh, Democrats retaining the Senate, Republicans now in control of the House, setting us up for what I think are going to be uh, a wild couple of years. And we're already seeing the wild stuff come into play. Leadership elections this week, we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, and we're also excited to talk with Alyssa Farah Griffin this week. Um, she's a former Trump White House communications director. Uh, and I think even more importantly for our discussion, she's a former House Freedom Caucus spokesperson. Um, and I know Brendan and I also worked closely with her in the House. So we're going to talk with her a little bit later on in the program. Uh, but first, as you mentioned, Brendan, there's so much to cover. Trump announced for president. McCarthy was nominated to be speaker. I think we saw surprising results in the whip election, some big news in the crypto world with the collapse of FTX. Where should we start? I, I think we have to start with the, the drama in the Senate. Recriminations are flying everywhere. Obviously, Republicans had hoped to take back the Senate and came up short. Uh, as we are recording this, Mitch McConnell was just reelected to be the leader of Senate Republicans for the next two years after a attempt by Rick Scott, the uh, NRSC chairman, to, to take him out, um, I think came nowhere close to actually defeating him. I think we had both predicted that uh, McConnell was, was pretty firm in his position, but it's been wild to see this actually play out in real life. You don't see the Senate usually acting like this, and you usually don't see sort of open warfare that's been going on. I know you've been watching that closely. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've been seeing not just from the senators themselves, but, you know, through the press, the consultant class has really been I mean, they just have the knives out for each other right now through Twitter. And, um, you know, they're just going just for any I mean, for anything and everything they're They're accusing each other of, you know, improperly sending fundraising emails uh, for the Georgia runoff. They're accusing each other of um, misusing funds and calling for the uh, SLF is calling for, um, you know, more insight into what's going on at the NRSC, maybe even through uh, an audit. This is something that Scott actually had to respond on the record to, to indicate that they are, you know, regularly producing audits um, for the NRSC. So yeah, Brendan, it's just not something that we typically, it's very messy. It's not something that we typically see play out so publicly through. I'm, I'm sitting here grimacing, listening to all this. Yeah. Like the fact that your own party is saying, look, we need to look under the books. You, you screwed this up. And then that's the guy who's actually trying to challenge McConnell is an interesting choice to be the person that they're throwing up against McConnell. Uh, not a, not a great candidate this time. Yeah, I think some other just shifting gears a little bit back to the House. Um, I think one other leadership election that I think neither of us really expected, um, for one, the amount of defections from Elise Stefanik for conference chair. Uh, I know that we were all kind of looking at Ferguson and Banks for the whip election as, as potentials to come in with a bruised Immer after his uh, showing with the NRCC. But I think we were both surprised that that, that didn't uh, come about. Yeah, we have a new House leadership slate, presumably, um, or at least a nominee for, for Kevin to be speaker. But I will say I was genuinely surprised to see Tom Emmer win that whip race. Uh, he got onto the second ballot by one vote. Uh, if Drew Ferguson had had, uh, I guess, two more votes, he would have uh, made it to the second ballot and Emmer wouldn't even have been, been an option. And somehow... Um, he, he snuck past and then won on the final ballot. Uh, tells me that a lot of people don't trust Jim Banks for whatever it is. Jim Banks did not increase his total very much on the second ballot. Seems like almost everybody who was with Ferguson switched over to Emmer. Um, I just kind of thought that Emmer was in, in trouble after uh, a less than stellar showing uh, on election night. 
And then the, you know, I don't know that it is much consequence, but I was actually pretty surprised to see uh, Elise Stefanik lose 70 something votes uh, to a younger, less well-known member of the house. Um, I just figured that she had a, a bit stronger hold uh, among her colleagues, but that was, was very, very interesting to me. Um, of course, the big news is, is Kevin McCarthy nominated for speaker, lost 31 seats or 31 votes in the, uh, in the closed door meeting. Those are, you know, he's probably going to have to make up 28 of those. I think that's doable. Um, there were, I would say a lot of bad vibes last week about Kevin's chances of eventually getting there, the Freedom Caucus, you know, launching. And I, and we'll talk to Alyssa later about what they're up to. Um, but I, I do remember when Paul Ryan first ran for speaker, in that closed door meeting, he lost 40 something votes. And then we turned around the very next day uh, and he very easily got the votes on the floor. So I don't think that 31 necessarily um, means he's he's done at all and that that's even like the number he needs to win over. I think a lot of those folks will be there um, in the end. But now we just start the, the waiting. Um, I, I, I don't think you're actually gonna see a whole lot of movement over the next month. There's no real sense in, in negotiating for the next six or seven weeks until the actual vote on the House floor when he needs 218. Um, but you can imagine they're all still going to be making their demands. He's going to have to make some. Um, but right now, the way I'm looking at it, the way I'm, you know, things I'm hearing from folks, I think McCarthy is going to make some concessions. Uh, and then he's just going to try to lean on these folks and say, you know, you have no other option. You have no other candidate who can win. Um, and what's your plan? And I think that, that he will have the momentum of the conference on his side to push some of these folks to come along and ultimately support him. And I do think he will be the next speaker. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is nobody else. That's what it comes down to. Um, I know we talked on the program with Jake Sherman recently. <laughs> a counterpoint to that is it's a, lo- it's a long time to twist in the wind for somebody. Yeah, it's not comfortable. And I'm sure, I mean, these guys, um, they love drama and they will create drama and and i'm sure there will be a lot of intrigue from now until then but i i would definitely put myself in kevin's position more than theirs uh at this point and another decision we're still waiting on uh over on the other side is uh, nancy pelosi's decision on whether she'll pursue leadership i know she's going to be making that decision uh ahead of november 30th uh, and she's kind of indicated through the press that she's, you know, deliberating, having conversations with her family, but that she is getting a lot of pressure from her other members uh, in, in her caucus to go ahead and put her name forward. I love this. They're all asking me to stay. I, you know, I, I wanted to go, but they're all they all want me to stay. Um, I, I, I shouldn't admit this because I don't know if anybody will remember it, but I think I tweeted like a year ago, like I will eat my hat if Nancy Pelosi is in leadership in 2023. And that's not looking like a good bet at this point. Um, yeah, I definitely think she's, I don't definitely, definitely get the vibe that she is going to stick around, which is wild to me. I don't know why you would want to sit around in the minority um, right now, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll keep it, we'll keep, we'll, we'll monitor that one for everybody. Uh, the obviously the other big announcement this week was Donald Trump announced he's running for president again. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily a huge surprise. He's been hinting that he's going to do that again. Uh, but I think we would all agree that there is a bit of a tougher hill for him to climb this time. A uh, lot of chatter around Washington that the party is perhaps ready to move on from him. I think we'll talk a little bit more about that. I'm not sure that's quite the case. But it is certainly the case that he is not the one and obvious only front runner. In fact, uh, we here at, at Seven Letter, the firm that Annalise and I work at, put out a poll just this week uh, where we polled people who voted in the 2020 midterm and asked people who voted Republican who their top choice for president next time would be. And only 26% picked Donald Trump, uh, trailing significantly behind Ron DeSantis and then a whole grab bag of people. But uh, nowhere near uh, even a majority of Republican voters ready to say that he is their top Trump top choice. Uh, long way to go from from here to there, and whether his his hold on the party is slipping at all, I think is a very open question. Um, but he's he's back. He's hovering over everything we do, and I'm sure will be uh, an important voice as Congress is trying to figure out what to do next year. But we're going to get to our guests, uh, Alyssa Fair Griffin, soon. Before we do that, we wanted to play a little game here. 
or game of buy or sell. There are a lot of narratives and takes spinning around Washington right now, a lot of big predictions. Uh, we thought we'd do a little lightning round of topics, just go through what, what we think as, we, as we're seeing some of these things uh, being, being pushed pretty heavy right now. One, let's start. Debt limit in uh, the lame duck session. A lot of, a lot of chatter that Democrats are going to try to increase the debt limit in the next few weeks, well, well ahead of when you actually need to do it as a way to just sort of clear the decks for next Congress. Annalise, are you buying or selling that? I'm selling that. I there's there is no way that this group of people is going to do anything before the absolute last minute possible. I, I sell as well. I, if it, it's one thing, if Democrats could easily pull this off with 50 votes on their own, which I guess theoretically they can through reconciliation, but that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And Chuck Schumer has already said he'd like to see it in a bipartisan way, and I just can't imagine. Uh, there are 10 Republican votes still at raise the debt limit right now, or, or Mitch McConnell has any interest in, in taking on that task when he's already getting a little heat from his members. Um, maybe a little less of a big lift, but um, still potentially challenging, an omnibus spending bill in the lame duck. Current funding runs out December 16th. Buying or selling that they will be able to do a full year spending bill by then? I'm selling this one as well, a little bit down on the prospects of anything really productive happening in lame duck i think they'll kick the can down the road and want to have you know the house majority the new house majority come in and and fight for their spending priorities that's very reasonable i will i will buy i will buy the idea that they can do an omnibus um you have a lot of senators who are retiring who i think would like to get their last legacy things done i think that there's a lot of incentive for uh, especially Kevin McCarthy to not have to fund the government as one of the first things he does. The alternative here is they have to kick this into February or March. Um, he can't be for it, but I think that Mitch McConnell knows that it would be very good for business if they got that out of the way. So I will, I will buy that idea. All right, here's my favorite one of the week. Moderate's revenge. There is this wonderful narrative that because the House majority is so narrow, everybody is more powerful, and that you have all of these new uh, members and swing districts in places like New York, that this Congress is going to be dominated by moderates coming back and asserting their power and pushing back against more conservatives in the House. Buying or selling moderates' revenge. Okay, I'm also selling this. I feel like I'm, I'm very negative, but I just don't, these are not the kind of members that you know, vote against rules. I mean, these are the kind of members that want to get things done, like just in their nature. And I have a really hard time um, seeing them, you know, either all coming together around one thing and deciding that they don't want any legislative priorities to progress because, you know, they want to get their their ask taken care of. This is such like Aaron Sorkin fan fiction that, oh, the, the middle comes together. Totally fair that this election showed that Republicans are, are weak in the middle and need to pay attention to that, but it is just not the way the House Republican Conference works. The culture of the House Republican Conference is always to be looking out for your right flank, what is good in Republican primaries. And there used to be a time that you cared about your swing districts, you used to care about what was good politics for your moderates. They just don't care anymore. Totally selling this. So I already talked about this next one. Um, Kevin McCarthy as the next speaker. I'm buying that. What's your take? Does he get the votes on the floor in January? I'm buying that too. Um, I, we, as we mentioned, you know, I just don't see any other alternative. I, I, I think that they're going to come together and, and I think McCarthy's going to be the next speaker. Next one. A lot of chatter this week about now, the now is the time that Republicans are finally going to move on from Donald Trump. Buying or selling that? I'm selling that. I think there's absolutely no way that when this plays out and, you know, it, when it comes to the primary elections that we're going to be seeing playing out over the across the United States, I think what the D.C. media and the headlines that we're, you know, seeing everywhere right now, I mean, we're inundated with them. Everyone in the in the press corps and everyone in D.C. is is creating this narrative that we're going to be moving on from Trump. Uh, but I think that's a lot easier said than done. So I'm selling. All right. I'm with you. Um, it's very easy for people in Washington to say they're done with Donald Trump. And we've said that many, many times. But by the time they actually hits voters, it goes very differently. So um, let's let's not hold our breath on that one. Uh, two more quick ones. Um, we talked about it a little bit. Mitch McConnell facing a threat, which he defeated. 
some suggesting that Mitch McConnell um, is on weaker ground than ever before and uh, that, that this is going to be have some kind of lasting impact on him. Are you buying or selling Mitch McConnell as wounded going into the next Congress? I'm selling that. I think McConnell's um, absolutely fine, and I don't think this will shake his conference's uh, support for him. Yeah, I, it was a pretty resounding defeat um, of, of Rick Scott. So I think the thing we have to potentially look at is will he have the ability to do some of these debt limit increases or government fundings without taking too much grief and he's always been able to kind of skirt by you know some people will make criticisms of the process or the policy but it's rare that senators really turn on mcconnell and we'll just have to see how much heat he gets from his own members when some of these things come up that they ultimately have to do last one spectacular fail blow up of FTX this week has lots of people talking about crypto, about where's the regulation, where's Congress, where are the regulators, what are they going to do? Um, the financial services committee has announced that they're going to have a hearing on this. And we've talked about this previously on the podcast, uh, buying or selling that there will be meaningful crypto legislation in the next Congress. I'm buying this, Brendan. I think, you know, not only is the House going to be taking this up, but I also think that um, the regulators are going to, I mean, there's going to be countless investigations on the regulatory side. I just think this is, I think this is going to be a focus for Washington. I think there are, are folks across the board that realize this is something that is just, you know, that there really needs to be some uh, form of regulation. Now, I, I do think that we're going to have to go a little bit back to the drawing board on some of the legislation, you know, that we came up with that, you know, might need tweaking. So I, I don't necessarily think this is going to be anything that we see in the immediate, but I think there is going to be continuous pressure as these investigations and conversations around what happened with FTX unfold and as the calls for action grow stronger. I, I'm tempted to buy as well uh, all the rational reasons you just said, but I think I'm going to sell this just based on the idea that this is something new and people don't have a ton of expertise in this space, but also because you have this weird jurisdictional challenge and where you've got folks in the financial services committee and folks at the ag committee um, and maybe others who all think that they're the ones who should be writing this bill and that tends to make things complicated so i'm gonna sell the idea that there's legislation in the next couple of years eventually probably but um I'm, I'm skeptical that they'll be able to to pull it off well, one notable item that we left off of this list uh, that you might have noticed is the House Freedom Caucus. And that's because uh, earlier today we sat down with Alyssa Farah Griffin to talk about the dynamics of the House Freedom Caucus, how it has evolved over her time serving as a spokesperson. And so now we're going to turn to that conversation. Alyssa, welcome to Control. Um, well, we all served in the House together uh, a while ago. Tell us a little bit about your career after the House, kind of what you've been up to uh, now before we jump back into our, our old glory days in the House. <laughs> the glory days they were. So um, thank you for having me. Uh, this is a fun reunion of uh, folks from kind of different sects of the former Republican conference. Uh, so yeah, back in the day, I was the uh, communications director for the House Freedom Caucus uh, back when it was first formed. Um, I went on from there to be Vice President Pence's press secretary, um, then went on to be the United States Department of Defense press secretary before ultimately going um, to the White House to be White House communications director kind of at the height of COVID in the final months of the Trump presidency. Um, so, you know, no, no shortage of um, wild times then. And then uh, more recently, I um, started a consulting, a communications consulting firm, um, signed up with CNN as a political contributor, and then most recently have also joined ABC's The View as uh, the conservative co-host. Wow. Busy lady, thank you for, for taking the time with us. I'm excited to have this conversation because uh, Alyssa, while we always had a nice relationship and Alyssa would kindly come over to the speaker's office and we would sit on the balcony and talk. Um, her bosses were often at odds with mine. So this is, this is fun for me. So my first question is, were you spending 99% of your time or a hundred percent of your time trying to screw with us back in the day? <laughs> uh, 99. <laughs> 99. 
Listen, it's it's so funny looking back. Um, you know, I was in my early mid twenties at the time that the Freedom Caucus was started, and I think there's something about being young. You want to be a rabble rouser in politics. You want to like shake things up, take you know, take on the establishment, quote unquote. And there was there was something that drew me to those guys early on, um, and it was kind of this idea of like we are a minority within the majority. How do we challenge our leadership and be fighters? And it's just looking back now, you know, roughly 10 years later, where the country is, where the party is, um, there's a lot of, you know, eating crow on my end of how we contributed to just sort of the the, the, the downfall in many ways of aspects of the Republican Party. Um, but Brendan, I don't know if you remember this. At one point, I um, I had pushed for this piece on Jim Jordan, who was, you know, the, the leader of the Freedom Caucus and in many ways still is. Um, and he gets this big profile. I want to say it was in Politico. That's like the other speaker of the House. So Brendan emails me and is like, do you have your own speaker's balcony? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Sadly, you don't. I'm sorry. We should not. We're basically in a closet. <laughs> I, I totally get that. That like what you're talking about being new. I mean, when I started on the Hill, I worked for Tom Price, and at that time, he was chairman of the RSC, the Republican Study Committee, uh, which before Freedom Caucus was, you know, considered the rabble rouser uh, group of of the House. Obviously, a much bigger caucus, like like a hundred something members. But I remember back then, you know, thinking like leadership is isn't you know, isn't sticking up for conservative principles and all that. It's just, it's funny how quickly the, uh, you see the world differently when you're on the other side of things. Well, and, and I think the Freedom Caucus in its early days had um, a worthy vision, I'll put it that way, um, which was in some regards about, you know, process and wanting to empower individual members, make them more a part of, you know, the amendment process or, um, you know, the bill writing process, they wanted less of a kind of top down approach to leadership, all fine, worthy um, aspirations. And then there was the kind of ideological side, which um, in its founding, I think, generally was in the conservative camp. What's remarkable to me, though, is looking at the trajectory and how what the Freedom Caucus stood for basically flipped on its head and frankly, very rapidly. Um, when, when Trump got steam and it became clear he'd be the nominee and then ultimately the president, um, there would have been a universe in which the Freedom Caucus, the true bearers of conservatism, would have been actually the challenge and the check on Trump's, you know, policies that maybe weren't the most conservative or, you know, very populist things that he was pushing. But instead, they completely folded to him. I mean, they, 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 they actually became basically the Trump defending wing of the Republican Party. Um, and I don't know if that was, you know, fear of irrelevance in the Trump era or if I misjudged, you know, the caucus to think that it was more of a conservative group as opposed to um, more of a populist nationalist group. And I think I think the latter is certainly true. And just one thing I do want to mention is the membership is different. Um, there's a lot of some of the same steady voices. We want to call them steady. <laughs> I don't think anyone's called them steady, but in the Freedom Caucus, like the Jim Jordans of the world, but a lot of the kind of original, more libertarian conservative members are now gone. And you've got, you know, the Matt Gateses, the Marjorie Taylor Greens um, as part of the caucus. And back in my day, by the way, we wouldn't let Louis Gohmert, for example, in or Steve King in because we thought they would embarrass the group because they were seen as fringe. And now uh, the group is fully the fringe. So you've talked a little bit about how the Freedom Caucus has evolved over time. And I'd love to go back a little bit for maybe our listeners who are not as familiar with the original sort of inception of the Freedom Caucus. So you were there, Alyssa, when, and I was there as well when they were, you know, most active. Um, so, you know, procedurally, I mean, how did the Freedom Caucus function? Um, and, and you've talked a little bit about how it's evolved, but I'd love for you to touch on too, you know, how it's changed over time. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it was started by eight original members, Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Mick Mulvaney, a little known guy named Ron DeSantis, um, I believe Jeff Duncan from South Carolina, Justin Amash, who was kind of like the consummate libertarian and like forever bill blocker in the house. Uh, but basically, these guys got together, there are a few more, and said, you know, how do we make ourselves, frankly, more powerful in the house? We're all on backbench committees. None of them were sitting on eight committees. Um, 
they at that time, you know, were rapidly opposed to anything Barack Obama did. He could, you know, kiss a puppy and they would take offense at that. So they saw if Speaker Boehner was even kind of trying to work with the White House on things like keeping the lights on in Congress, they saw that as, you know, a neglecting of, of, of their duty to conservatism. So they came up with this idea of like harnessing the power of the minority within the majority. And it's it, it's it's smart. And, and to some ways, it's been replicated by members of the squad, like the progressive wing of the House now to kind of challenge their own leadership at times, which is basically if you can deny the speaker 218 votes, you can play a pretty significant role in either shaping what's on the what's ultimately put back on the floor or in getting extractions from them. So meaning, you know, we want certain committee assignments or we want a certain amendment included or we want a certain vote considered. Now, you know, and Brennan can correct me if I'm wrong. I think Boehner wisely didn't even really humor it. He kind of was like, I'll meet with these guys. I don't trust them. Um, I've he's, you know, had been felt like he'd been stabbed in the back. I bet by many of them multiple times. He famously actually called Jim Jordan a legislative terrorist. Um, and he kind of took the, the approach of like, don't deal with them. Let crazy be crazy. Um, I think when it, and I don't want to get ahead if this is something we're going to talk about, but um, when Paul Ryan became speaker, I think there was a little bit of the, the memory lingering over him of how they played a role in Boehner stepping down. So there was a little bit more of an effort to work with them, but it honestly didn't help because at the end of the day, I don't know that there was a particularly good faith effort to want to benefit the whole House Republican conference so much as to like leverage power. Yeah. So, I mean, we definitely engaged with Freedom Caucus much more under Ryan than we did under Boehner. I mean, I think in Boehner days, kind of knew what we were dealing with a little bit, but it was new. And it was, you know, it was, some of it was just sort of Boehner's uh, personality, like just didn't have time for that kind of nonsense. Um, but with Paul, like he definitely thought that his, especially the way that he came to the speakership was, uh, I'm here to sort of unify everybody. I'm here to bring everybody into the fold. So that means I do need to listen to the Freedom Caucus, but I also need to listen to the two-state group. And so we would have these meetings once a week uh, where Jordan and Meadows would come, but so would Elise, you know, then representing the moderates um, and some folks from the RSC would come. And so we would, um, we would always just, you know, kind of make sure we were hearing everybody out. I want to key on something that you said though, um, that they were largely started because they wanted to figure out how to strengthen themselves. And that is consistent with my view of them, but you would often have people like Justin Amash who say, no, no, we only exist because we want to have a more open egalitarian process on the house floor, but that's part of it. But I always you know, saw that the most unifying thing here was they wanted relevance. I mean, is that not what they have always been driven by more than anything? They wanted to find a way to have power that simple? Yeah, hands down. Um, I think early on, I wanted to believe, I think what, what jo Justin Amash uh, truly believed, I think he was in it for that. I think um, Amash was an outlier, by the way. He voted against, you know, very basic things because he would find, you know, constitutional ob objections. He's like a consummate libertarian and not really, not, I, you know, I, and I, I still like Justin to this day in the sense that he is probably the single most um, consistent politician I've ever worked with. You at least know what you're getting from him. But I think that there was a bit of like hiding behind, no, this is about process and procedure and empowering those who were voted in by the electorate. But in reality, it was a relevance play and it was, um, and it was pushing policies that were in line with what they wanted. So like, you know, I remember battles over the border. Um, I now have, you know, hindsight's always 2020. So then, you know, for me going on to work for, for Pence, where, you know, we wanted to see bills not just pass the House, but also through the Senate and also get signed into law, or especially when I was at the Department of Defense, where like CRs were the worst thing you could do to the military, um, continuing resolutions, you have the benefit of I had the benefit of learning why so many of our tactics were just destructive because you can't get anything of value done um, if you're only trying to shape it to the rightmost flank of the house. Like that's just not how governance works. And you know, as the constitutional conservatives, it's it's not how our government was intended to work. Um, 
So it, it is really like, it's interesting reflecting back, but I do think there was, it was ultimately a, a play for power guys who um, didn't really have a shot of getting on important committees and certainly didn't have a shot in leadership. You know, they got front page press. Uh, they got to Brendan's point. I'd forgotten about that, but they got those regular meetings with the speaker, things that otherwise they wouldn't probably have gotten. So I think that was probably primary motivating factor. Yeah. And it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit hard to consider what might happen in the future with the way that this all played out in the past. But, you know, if you had to do some forecasting, I'd be curious to get your take on whether you think that this group will, you know, similarly be um, holding to, you know, hey, we really need to reform these, these measures for our principal conservative values, or if they're going to come in and, and just kind of try to get whatever they can, you know, in exchange for their votes for speaker at first, and then, you know, potentially committee chair, committee positions and, and all of that uh, that comes to follow. Well, if, if I were Kevin McCarthy, and I've been saying this to political reporters, I would be reading, you know, up on the 2015-2016 tactics of the Freedom Caucus because they're going to use the same playbook um, if he ends up making it to speaker, which, by the way, they've already tapped into our old playbook um, of running um, Andy Biggs in the conference just to show Kevin that he doesn't have enough votes without them to get 218 on the floor. So um, there, that is that is a, a tactic meant to spend the next, you know, until January getting the most commitments and extractions from him. So I think it's going to be, you know, committee assignments they're looking for. It's um, any number of things, frankly. I actually don't think there's a real push to get one of their own into leadership. That was something that um, we had always toyed with, but the reality was a Jim Jordan was never going to get more than maybe. 50 votes in the house. So even if they put up one of their guys, it's just even in as right as the house has gone, um, you know, maybe a Jim Banks could, could get there, but certainly not, um, a Jim Jordan, but, um, the, the, the pro, I mean, what's, what's, what's interesting to watch. I, I, I disagree with it in terms of what's good for, for Congress, the country, and certainly for the caucuses. I think McCarthy has uh, some PTSD from 2015 when Freedom Caucus blocked him from becoming speaker. Um, not to go like super deep track here, but um, Walter Jones, a former North Carolina member who's, who's since passed, uh, circulated a dear colleague right after McCarthy announced his bid, basically accusing him of some impropriety that ultimately led to McCarthy not pursuing the speakership. And that's how, and that was then when everyone had to, twist Paul Ryan's arm and beg him, the star of the party, um, to be speaker, which Brennan could speak to it better than me. I don't think he wanted. Um, I think that he's got some difficult memories from that time. So that's why you see him appearing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. You see he and Elise running writer and writer and writer and coming out and, you know, endorsing Donald Trump at a point when the field hasn't even emerged yet. Um, listen, it's not good for America, just to put it bluntly. Um, I could, if McCarthy squeaks it out, in my opinion, if he gets the 218, which is a, it's a big if, um, I think it could be one of the shortest speakerships in history. One of the things that the Freedom Caucus is looking to do as part of the rules package, um, and, and I'm not sure where this stands now, but is to make it easier to use something Brendan's very familiar with, the motion to vacate, which is this old procedural tool that basically allows you to present a vote of no confidence in the speaker. You can do it, honestly, any one guy off the reservation or gal can, can you know, drop it in uh, whatever you call it, put it in and basically start a period to try to gather support for unseating your leader. It's almost like a parliamentary tool, frankly. Um, there, That is going to be hanging over his head at every turn. Um, there, I think they'll use it to push him to impeach Joe Biden, frankly. Um, something that there's absolutely no reason to do. There's no constitutional valid reason to impeach Joe Biden, whether you love him or hate him. Um, and, and that's just going to be the reality that, frankly, McCarthy and Stefanik created for themselves. They are now beholden to the rightmost flank of the House. And today's rightmost flank is even crazier than the one Brendan had to deal with back in the day. Well, let me put you on the spot. Do you think Kevin McCarthy is the next Speaker of the House? My gut tells me yes, so long as he keeps kissing the Trump ring. 
Um, like I, you know, even as recently as yesterday, Trump was signaling to folks he wants it to be McCarthy. But listen, I'd be looked if I were him, I would be watching my back so hard. Um, yeah. Lee Stefanik is angling very much so. Jim Banks, you know, sees himself as speaker. Um, the Freedom Caucus also recently hosted Tucker Carlson to talk to their new members, who's increasingly, um, you know, called for new leadership. So I would say it's like 60-40 uh, McCarthy speaker. So I'd love to get your perspective on this. They, You said they're using the same old playbook. It also feels a little stale at this point. And yeah, it, it's pretty clear what they're doing. You know, they're making demands. They want to use their leverage. They, they want things. Um, and I, I just had the sense that that's not going to go over very well in the conference over time. And that, and that not necessarily a new dynamic. It was very often that whatever the Freedom Caucus was doing was upsetting their colleagues. Um, and I guess so they got some of their power from just not giving a damn whether their colleagues uh, were upset at them. But um, while they're using a lot of the same tactics, do you feel like this is the same kind of quality of gang like do they have their act together enough because i think another thing kevin has going for them is these folks just don't seem to really um they don't seem to be uh hitting on all cylinders and and they really have much of a strategic game plan figured out other than sort of just doing what they did last time so i disagree partially and agree partially so scott perry freedom caucus member um and i believe he's the current chair um used to used to sing you know freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose but that was kind of their mindset they were sort of um you know to to use boehner's term legislative terrorists because that was sort of all they had it's it, to, to some degree it's a relevance thing for a few of them it truly was a principal thing but they were the the, the few um the the diff where I disagree with you is I don't know how organized they are, but I will say the 31 votes that I believe Andy Biggs got in conference, that's a decent block to be able to hold together against McCarthy for speaker. Um, it's not like particularly formidable, you know, it's not like they have numbers in the 50s by any means, but that was a small show of force. The real issue is that there's not a strong moderate caucus anymore in the House. Um, in in our days, um, you know the Tuesday group was bigger, it had more members, and at times often much more powerful than the Freedom Caucus. And they were able to be kind of the adults in the room who could then, you know, go on television and say like, no, we're trying to pass a transportation bill, we're trying to fund our military, like these are things we have to do. Those guys are off the reservation and kind of keeping us from getting things done. That doesn't really exist anymore. Like we've chased Adam Kinzinger the hell out of Congress, like, the, the guys who were sort of the stars of the moderate Charlie Dent's gone. Um, I don't know beyond some like Brian Fitzpatrick and maybe Don Bacon types who the stars of the moderate caucus are. Now, if I were a moderate in the house right now, I would be organizing for the next couple months to figure out how you kind of build a bigger and stronger base. And frankly, if I were Kevin McCarthy, I would be trying to build that myself. Um, but I also don't know if that works when, Elise Stefanik, for example, the consummate moderate future of the party, you know, we all were just like, yes, we saw ourselves in Elise has become, you know, a staple of Steve Bannon's war room. Like, it's just the caucus has changed. And I'm not sure there's a strong moderate flank there, but it could form. Well, I, th I think that's interesting that you you thought that there was a strong moderate uh, wing, because we always thought that the moderates never stood up for themselves and got run over, uh, frankly, by you guys, but getting back to Kevin. So, okay. Um, fair enough that, you know, they had 30 something folks. I, I don't think that's anywhere close to 30 who are going to be actually willing to vote against him on the floor. And I, I doubt you think so either, but what, what's their end game here? Like, what's the, what's the plan? I mean, and that, that also, I think seems to be working against them. They don't seem to really have much of a plan. Um, and I think that's going to upset their colleagues, uh, whether you're moderates or just kind of your, you know, general standard, you know, RSC member, maybe what's, if you're the Freedom Caucus, what, what do you think is going to happen here? Do you think you can actually get a scalp? Is it to take down Kevin McCarthy? Is it about Kevin? Um, or is it just to get some stuff? So you, you're right. They're, they're not organized around what it is that they want to do in my sense. Um, they do, they want the power. So like, again, 
getting the motion to vacate, making it easier to use that is important to them because it does just end up becoming, pardon like the term, but a gun to the head of the speaker. Um, and I really hate to say that in this environment, but figuratively, of course, um, it, I think that they want to exist to be Trump's voice within the House of Representatives. And they're going to be taking a lot of their direction and what they do from him and frankly, from Tucker Carlson. So if they see that the base, let's call them that, um, the you know nationalist populist wing of the Republican Party wants to see Alejandro Mayorkas impeached, well, then they're going to hold impeachment hearings. If there's enough push, they're going to call for Joe Biden you know, to be impeached. It's going to be a lot of focus on investigations, on crippling the Biden administration from being able to get anything done right now, which, by the way, broadly, I think the House of Representatives is for oversight and, you know, uh, kind of challenging some of the actions in the Biden administration. And I'd agree with it on things like the Afghanistan withdrawal, but I think they're going to take it steps further. But what you have to understand about this Freedom Caucus, which isn't totally different from back in the day, but the environment has changed. A lot of this is about building their brand so that they can then go on to become a cable news or a Newsmax star. So this is as much about, I would say it's as much about like building their fame, their relevance and bringing attention to themselves and being able to say, we are the real fighters. We're the real Trump wing of the party. The rest are rhinos as it is about any actual policy position. So one question I have as well about, you know, Jim Jordan in particular, um, one big difference that we're seeing now is, you know, his alliance with McCarthy. Um, and I'm curious in, in your experience and your thoughts around whether or not that's something that McCarthy should be wary of, um, you know, looking over his shoulder, as you were saying about, you know, potentially some backstabbing going on, or if you think that that's someone in an alliance that he can, you know, truly count on. And I'll, I'll just add, I have been saying for two years that this is the most important relationship to understand Congress right now, what McCarthy has been able to do to uh, rope in Jim Jordan is fascinating to me. And I think it is where he gets a lot of his, his power. And I'm just really curious to hear what he thinks up with that. Well, I think it was strategically smart initially of McCarthy to to kind of form that bond and that relationship. And trust me, it was bizarre to watch. And even when I was still in the White House, the Meadows-McCarthy relationship that started to form was was strange for those of us who you know were there five years prior. Um, but it is a relationship of convenience. Um, Jim Jordan will stay aligned with Kevin McCarthy so long as Donald Trump is aligned with Kevin McCarthy, which right now McCarthy has kind of masterfully maintained that Trump relationship. Um, so I I think that that lasts basically as long as the Trump relationship holds. And like. And Brendan, you actually probably know Kevin McCarthy better than I do, but having spent some time with him over the years, you know, my general read on him is he's, it's basically, he's motivated by, by, by power, um, which who's not in politics, but it's more about, you know, ultimately getting where he's always wanted to be to speaker than it is about, you know, in comparison to someone like Paul Ryan, where it's the policy wins and it's, you know, the, the narrative and the shape of who the party is. So when you're really just kind of in it to win it, um, and I put, sadly, I put Elise Stefanik in that category now as well. I never would have years ago. Um, you can make some real, some pretty significant compromises. Um, now, I, I think there's some wisdom in like, you know, give the Freedom Caucus guys their spots on oversight. Jim's got judiciary. It will create headaches inevitably for Kevin, but it at least gives them something to do. That was actually a Boehner tactic. It's like, may, just give them something to do. Let's keep them busy. Um, but it it will become a headache for him. I actually like the, this is really old school, but um, I remember Speaker Boehner putting Michelle Bachman, who was kind of like pre-Freedom Caucus rabble rouser on Intel because she couldn't even talk about most of the work she was doing. Now, now nowadays rules are so broken. I wouldn't put any of those guys near an intelligence committee because they would probably hijack it and you know use it for partisan reason reasons but the smart thing to do is give them just enough to keep them at bay i don't think that holds if if there's any sense that the house is not the you know mobilized armed body against the biden agenda then they're going to call for new leadership and that could come honestly could come within the first quarter of mccarthy's potential speakership yeah, I'm I'm just trying to figure out 
I, I hear that a lot. And I think it used, I, I probably used to buy into it. I just, I think Kevin is going to get the speakership and then I'm not just, I, I don't say this just to kind of like be a booster for Kevin. Um, I think he's going to get the speakership and I think he's going to be able to last a lot longer than people think. I, obviously some of that has to do with um, whether or not they're able to do a funding deal and if he has to try to fund the government right away and how many sort of ugly things he has to deal with right away. But I just give him credit for bringing in Jordan into the fold, keeping those relationships on the right. Uh, you know, I, I also have a sense that there is always a really strong desire for unity in the conference. And, uh, you know, I've been in too many conference meetings where they all give their, uh, you know, brave heart speeches and quote Churchill. And, you know, they all, you know, tell everybody how much they love each other. I, I think there's going to be a little more unity here than I think people are giving me credit for, but, you know, I also don't ever trust the freedom caucus. And so um, I'm curious, you know, if, if you think that that is, if they are still ultimately going to be um, looking to take somebody out to score some points, you know, I hear from people, you know, they regret not trying to take out Paul Ryan more, you know, if that's ultimately what motivates them, then, then maybe you're right. Yeah, I think so long as Kevin McCarthy is, you know, kind of aligned at the hip, hip with Donald Trump and his messaging on Fox News is, you know, not all that different than Jim Jordan's. Um, and he's, you know, espousing kind of the same priorities um, that the Freedom Caucus is, which at this point he is. I do think that's his that's his roadmap for staying in power. Um, I mean, in, another like one of McCarthy's greatest strengths has always been his fundraising. And despite the 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 losses and like the small margin that it looks like Republicans will win the House, um, he still raised a hell of a lot of money. And there would be hard pressed to find somebody who could step in and do what he did better. Um, so that's something he can fall back on. But yeah, I expect, well, you know, and just building out even to the more national scene, there's a lot of these kind of premature obituaries of Donald Trump. And now it's Ron DeSantis. That's that that is way too soon to say. McCarthy's going to be down at Mar-a-Lago within weeks. Um, he needs Trump to get the speakership and to maintain it. Um, so the House will remain fully aligned with Trump, and perhaps that is the unity that that they need. Yeah, no doubt. That kind of leads us perfectly into our our uh, next conversation point, which Brendan and I earlier we were talking about the different narratives. Um, and whether we buy or sell them, just kind of, are we buying into the fact that um, is the party going to be able to move on from Trump? And that was something that we discussed. And, you know, it sounds like you're saying no. And I think Brendan and I both kind of agree it's going to be a lot um, harder than, you know, a bunch of headlines saying, you know, it's time to move on from Trump. But uh, curious to hear your thoughts on that. Buying or selling? <laughs> not buying it, um, not buying it one bit. Listen, we've seen this movie before. Um, you know, Brendan was against Trump long before I was. Um, but, you know, if losing the presidency, um, you know, losing the Senate and then inciting a violent mob to storm the Capitol wasn't enough for the party and the party leadership to ultimately walk away from Donald Trump, not to mention, you know, two impeachments, not convicted in the Senate, um, then losing the Senate in the midterms is not going to be the nail in the coffin of Donald Trump's political life. Um, there's, of course, a lot of momentum around Ron DeSantis, but winning Florida is very different than winning, a, you know, a primary and ultimately a general election nationally. He's not tested on that level. Um, I don't know him well. He was one of our original HFC guys. I dealt with him a bit when I was in the Trump White House. It's it's you know a lot of ink's been spilled on it, but he 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 lacks a certain charisma, um, to to put it mildly. Um, I also worry about the scenario where you have a wide field, where you've got you know a bunch of guys who are like, I am the answer. Hopefully, some women, but you know, I'm not even sure who would get in at this point if someone like a Nikki Haley would bother. Um, a, a big field only helps Trump. Um, and and and. You know, finally, that the reality is that the diehard portion of the MAGA base, I'm going to call it 30 percent, but nobody has accurate polling on how diehard it is. But the guys who, you know, were, are with him through anything, um, they're not going to embrace DeSantis or anyone else that we put up. They think the election was stolen from him last time. So they think this is his time. 
Anyone who's not with him is an apostate. It's a, it's a religious like following of him. Um, and I, I, out of, you know, morbid curiosity, follow a lot of these folks on, you know, different uh, right wing, you know, channels online and, and they're already turning on DeSantis. Um, I personally, if I were advising him, um, you know, I would just wait out the cycle, um, you know, keep building your brand and go another time. But no, I think reports of Trump's demise are greatly overstated. I've said it to my dear friends and my colleagues at CNN who think he's done for. Um, listen, his announcement last night, absolutely no elected Republican wanted that at that timing. Um, but, you know, things are going to look a lot different in January, and they're certainly going to look a lot different in, call it June, when he's got hundreds of millions of dollars in his war chest um, and where he just continues to absorb all the oxygen in the room uh, anytime he's with other Republicans. I actually completely agree. I, I'm actually surprised to, to hear you say that. I mean, I, I, not that you don't think that we're moving on from Trump, but I, I completely agree that he is still like in the absolute shotgun seat here on uh the nomination. I and your your commentary on on DeSantis made me laugh. I was talking to a former colleague uh, earlier, and I will quote him: "My ability to handicap him as a candidate is hampered by the fact that I've met him. Uh, not the <laughs> not, not the not, not the nicest, most uh, warm guy you're ever going to come across." Um, well, Alyssa, this was awesome. Thank you for joining us. Um, congratulations on the enormity of your success. Um, very. Glad to see you out there doing all these great things. Um, so thank you for for spending some time with us and, and sharing your insights. If I could just say one thing, a line I've stole from you, Brendan, but I've heard it echoed elsewhere. I'm also bullish that an indicted Donald Trump would still be the Republican nominee. So reports of his demise greatly overstated. But thank you for having me. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks, Alyssa. Thank you to Alyssa for joining us. And thank you for listening to Control. There's a lot more to our story, but we won't have a show next week. We'll be back the week after Thanksgiving to talk more about what's to come. Have a great Thanksgiving. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.